Hey everyone, my name is Adam and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. At the end of today's episode, please take a minute and download our free Chestnut Ridge app. It has all our recent message content and more. You can also head to theridge.church to get information on service times and get info on everything going on here at the Ridge. We hope this podcast will encourage and inspire you as you continue to grow in your relationship with God and others. Good morning. Uh, one of the stories in the Bible that's most difficult for people who are critics of the Bible to accept as true is the story of Noah's Ark. I mean, I can understand why people might struggle with that, the idea of a worldwide flood that, that really destroys all life on the planet, or even the idea of a boat that had all of all these animals on it. As I was thinking about this talk this morning, I came across this meme online of Noah's Ark, and I think it's the image sometimes people have of this kind of like a, a big boat that's overloaded with these big animals, you know, and then it says Noah's Ark. Seems legit. And I realize why people could struggle with it, and yet I'm convinced the story happened exactly as it's recorded in the pages of the Bible, and not just because it's in the Bible. You may not realize this, but there are over 250 versions of a story like this in ancient cultures around the world. And the details of the stories in the other cultures are very similar in many cases. Now, sometimes they're very different. But even the Babylonian story, which was very different, is one that has, at the end of their story, the release of a raven and a dove. And that's what Noah did in Noah's Ark. Now, the rest of the Babylonian story is kind of very different. Even the reason why the gods destroyed humanity from the Babylonian story of the worldwide flood is that they were annoyed. Humans were too loud. So let's get rid of them. I mean, that's that's the Babylonian interpretation of why there was a worldwide flood. And their boat was a cube, a huge cube. It would have sunk like a rock. Contrary to that, the biblical story of the boat, the dimensions that are included back in Genesis, would make a boat that would be very floatable. In fact, it'd be almost impossible to sink that boat. It was their perfect dimensions. But other cultures have this story. The Hawaiians have a version of this that lines up almost identically to the biblical story. In their version, after the death of the first man, the world became wicked and evil, and so God decided to destroy everything or the gods. But there was one man who was good. His name was Nuru. He built this huge canoe, and he put a house on it, and then he filled it up with animals. And this guy and his family were the only ones saved, and at the end of this story, there happens to be a rainbow. I think some people look at the fact there are all these flood stories and they conclude, well, the Bible borrowed the story from somebody else. My perspective is the Bible story came first. And the reason there are differences in the stories, of course, is that they were passed on all the way back from from Noah and his kids and the generations. It's kind of like that game telephone. If you play that when you're a kid, you whisper something in the ear of one kid and he whispers it to the next and, and on and on it goes. And when you get to the end, it's just humorous, the, 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 the thing that's whispered because it doesn't even resemble what was said at the beginning. And I think that's kind of what happened. And so I agree with Dr. Warren Wearsby who says archaeologists tell us that many ancient civilizations have a flood tradition which details, with details paralleling the Genesis account. 
It is likely that these stories involving their fanciful gods and goddesses were corruptions of the original history of the flood that was handed down from generation to generation. My point is this, the presence of all these stories suggests there was indeed one story from which all the other ones came. And I would suggest it's the biblical accounting of the story that even though the account was written later, it was written in Moses' day, the events took place all the way back with the story of Noah. Now, I also believe this story because in the Bible, other people believe the story, like Isaiah the prophet. He believed in a real Noah. So did the apostles. And so did Jesus himself. Jesus referred to this story and used it to say, listen, it's going to be exactly the same way when I come back. In Matthew 24, 37 to 39, he said, and he was referring to himself as in the days of Noah, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. That's his reference to himself when I come back. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. So this is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. He was saying, learn from the example of this story that when I come back, it's going to be very similar. People are going to discount the potential of such a judgment. They're going to go about life just normally, and all of a sudden, it's going to catch them off guard. Now, before I get into really the heart of what I want to talk about here today, about the story and the main point I want to make, I want to briefly mention one other factor related to it, and that is the idea of all these animals on the ark, because I, I think this is a part of the story that people have some trouble with, and they think, well, would all those animals have fit on the, the ark? And the answer is absolutely yes. This boat was considerably bigger than people think it is, or it was. This boat was, in its length, one and a half times the distance of a football field. So imagine when you've been at a stadium, WVU Stadium, and you look at the size of that thing, expanded by 50%. That's your boat. It would have been 75 feet wide. It would have been 45 feet tall. It was 101,000 square feet. It was bigger than this building. It's a massive structure. Would have been, it would have had room for all the animals, even including dinosaurs. It could have. Now, I think sometimes when we think of all the animals on the ark, there are two things that get in the way. Number one is, in our minds, we think that all the animals that God brought to the ark would have been fully grown. And I don't believe that was likely the case. And so we think of this big, uh, you know, giraffe that had to live there on this boat for a year. And like, what did it do with its neck? Well, it would have been a baby. And you think of, you know, these big elephants. Well, they would have been babies. And then there were two of each kind, but they were two of each species, not two of every kind of every kind. And so we're talking about two dogs from which all the others came. And you're saying all those varieties of dogs came from those two? Yeah, I believe so. Just like with humans. We all came from Noah. All of us. Regardless of anything that defines us or separates us in terms of our outward appearance, we all came from Noah as well. But if we can set aside the objections to the story, we tend to view this as a story of God's judgment and destruction, and we view it almost in the sense that maybe God got angry with everybody and flooded the world, but I don't view the story that way at all. Today, I want to approach the story from a different angle. I believe this is a story of the kindness and goodness of God. And this story fits in with all the other stories we want to be talking about in this series timeline. 
Because we're looking at these various stories and they're all part of God's bigger story and God's bigger story is a story of love. It's a story of relationship with humanity. It's a story of redeeming sinful humanity and bringing us back to our God, restoring things. That's, that's the nature of this story as, long, as well as all the others. But today I want to answer the question, how does the story reflect the goodness of God? And I want to suggest three things. Number one is that God's goodness is reflected through the grief he felt over the badness he saw. God's goodness was seen in the fact that he felt grieved by what he saw in terms of what had happened to humanity. Let's begin reading in Genesis 6, verses 5 through 8. When the Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every scheme in his mind thought was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Then the Lord said, I will wipe off from the face of the earth mankind whom I created together with the animals, creatures that crawl and birds of the sky for I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor in the sight of the Lord. The year we're talking about is between 2050 B.C. and 2500 B.C. And so we're talking about almost 2500 years before Jesus was born. But another way to look at the story is this was 1500 years after Adam and Eve. Now what I want to note about this is just how quickly humanity had become totally corrupt totally irredeemable in, in the course of a, a millennium and a half, 1,500 years. And I'm convinced that the world at this time was not fixable. It was broken. It needed to be, you had to start over. I kind of hate to use this illustration because I tend not to use words like toilet in a Sunday talk. But I had a toilet that broke. And it was really just the, the, the rubber seal on the bottom of, of the inside of the tank. It was leaking. I don't remember if it was torn. Whatever it was, it, it was running constantly underneath. So I thought, I'll just replace it. You know, so I go to the hardware store. I find the right kind of replacement to put in it. And I go and put it in. And then I go to attach it to the chain and realize, oh, wait a minute, the chain. The, there's, there's no way to attach it. It's the wrong, it's the wrong kind of chain. You know, they must have changed something there. I couldn't attach it. I didn't want to drill a hole in the rubber piece that I'd end up with the dripping water again. So I went back to the store, bought a chain. They only had one kind of chain. Huge store, one kind of chain. And so I assumed it must be a standard chain, must be a standard length. And so I bought it, brought it home. <laughs> it was too short. So what's with the chain? It's too short. Then I realized, well, I kind of had an older tank, the kind that didn't care whether you were running a lot of water. It wasn't one of those kinds. The tank was too big. It was too long. I thought, I can't, what do I do about that? Or I thought, well, maybe there's a handle arrangement on the outside that can connect with the chain that would connect with the rubber piece. So I went back to the store and found a handle that had an extra thing. I thought, oh, this is it. This will solve the problem. It did not solve the problem. Eight hours later, I ripped the thing out of the floor. <laughs> I was, I mean, I didn't tear it out. I, I, I took it off by the bolts, although that was a temptation just to rip the whole thing out. I put it in a bag and took it outside, started over. I just went and bought a brand new one. 
because you couldn't fix it. It had changed so dramatically since they were put in initially, I, I couldn't, you couldn't fix it. There might have been old parts somewhere, I don't know. But in this story, it says the wickedness of humanity was widespread. It was everywhere. The text indicates that every scheme of the mind was evil all the time. The word scheme in this passage refers to plans. It can be translated the plans of everyone's mind. Everyone, what they thought about and planned to do, whether it's with their life, their morals, whether it was how they treated people, work ethic, whatever, all their thoughts were just always evil all the time, conjuring up evil all the time. The problem's reiterated in Genesis 6, 11. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. I, I think of the word corrupt, I think of rust. It is completely rusted. It was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. This could be translated injustice. In other words, the way the wickedness was reflected in how poorly they treated everybody else. There was no justice in this world. God saw how corrupt the earth was for every creature had corrupted itself or its way on the earth. Now, if God saw this, there are two choices that God would have. Either he would see it, and I, I envision that he'd get really angry. The second option, I think he'd see it and get really sad. And which one happened to God? This is the thing that reflects, I think, his goodness. I mean, I think there was probably some anger as part of it, but it was sadness. In Genesis 6, 6, it says, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. By the way, the word regret seems to imply, or even in some versions it says he repented. Uh, the word seems to imply that God was caught by surprise, like he made humanity, he tried the experiment and, and said, that didn't work. Let's start over. Like it caught him off guard. God wasn't caught off guard. He knew this was gonna happen. The word regret here is just trying to capture what was happening in his heart. He regretted what people had done with themselves. Okay, Matthew puts it this way, whereas the antediluvian man, which means pre-flood or pre-deluge, whereas the antediluvian man plots evil in his heart, God's response to their imagination is a wounded heart filled with pain. He then adds, the making of man is no error, it is what man has made of himself. The point I'm trying to make with this first point is this, though. If a person is good, and I kind of put good in parentheses because I realize that humans, for example, none of us are good enough to get to heaven on the basis of our goodness. We're not good in that sense. But in the New Testament, there are some words that kind of describe a person who we would call as being a good person. Benevolent, kind, compassionate. Someone you'd say, that's a good person. My point is this, that if a person is good, they can't look upon bad and evil and injustice and all these horrible things without their heart either getting angry or, or sad. When they see it, it's a reflection of the goodness within their own heart when it's contrasted with what they're watching here. When it says what God was grieved by what he saw, the word that's used there in the original Hebrew language of the Old Testament is used elsewhere in the Bible to describe somebody who was grieving the loss of a family member. That's how God felt. My children, look what, you, look what you've done. Now, I hope when you see evil and injustice in this world, it stirs something in your heart. When you see people that aren't treating people properly, unjustly, discriminately, or whatever else, the evil in this world, it should stir something in our hearts, leading to either anger or sadness. 
We see this, of course, in other places in the Bible, like the story of Lot is an example of someone who lived in Sodom. It was a wicked city, but he felt horrible about it. Lot, who was Abraham's nephew, gets a bad rap in Genesis because he was kind of selfish. You know, Abraham gave him a choice to take this big plot of land or this big plot of land, and he took the best. He should have deferred to Abraham, but he didn't do it. And so Lot ended up in the city of Sodom, but Peter describes what it was like for Lot living in that city. In 2 Peter 2.8, for as he lived among them, Lot lived among the people of Sodom, that righteous man, that good man tormented himself day by day with the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Lot could hardly stand what he was witnessing. And he realized there's nothing he could do about it. I suspect that when God told Lot that he was going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot said, I'm not surprised. He saw where it had ended up. But with this first point, I'm just saying I'm encouraged by the goodness of God. I'm glad that we have a God that can look upon evil and be distressed by it. Look upon injustice and his heart is stirred by it. And it's a reflection of his goodness. Second point I'd like to make is that his goodness is reflected in his willingness to start over. God is incredibly patient. He's incredibly gracious with people. It started, of course, with Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden when he gave them a second chance. After they turned their back on him, he again was the one that went looking for them. I don't see them looking for him at all, but he went looking for them. And he gave them a second chance. There were consequences for what they did wrong, but he was willing to allow them to continue to live. 1,500 years later, humanity had completely corrupted itself. And I'm not surprised by that, by the way, because you think of Adam and Eve, you think of their kids, Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel, so you got murder all the way back in Genesis 4. Happens so quickly, all of humanity now is so corrupted that God could have said, I am done. I want nothing to do with humans. But he decided to start over with Noah because he had so much in mind, so much good that he wanted to do. In Genesis 6, 8, we read, Noah, however, found favor in the sight of the Lord. It's a short verse, but it's, it's filled with so much hope. All was not lost. But this is the way God is. In all the stories in the Bible, I see the patience of God when it comes to at least judgment. With Sodom and Gomorrah, God told Abraham, I'm going to destroy those two cities. And Abraham said to God, if, if there are 50 righteous people in, in those cities, will you save them? Surely, God, you're not the kind of God that sweeps away the righteous with the unrighteous. Will you spare it, those cities, for 50? And God said, sure, I'll spare them for 50. Abraham went back. How about 45? God said, okay. And they kept negotiating until Abraham finally stopped at 10. If there are 10 people that you can find that are righteous, will you withhold on this judgment thing? God said, yeah, if there are 10. But there weren't. There weren't 10. Just Lot, his wife, his daughters. So in Genesis 6, 17, God said these words to Noah, understand I'm bringing a flood. Flood waters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will die, but that's the encouraging word here. I will establish my covenant with you. And you'll enter the ark with your sons, your wife, your sons' wives, 
You are also to bring into the ark two of all the living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of everything, from the birds according to their kinds, from the livestock according to their kinds, and from the animals that crawl on the ground according to their, to their kinds. They'll come to you so that you can keep them alive. Of course, God brought them to the ark. 21, take with you every kind of food that's eaten. Gather it as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did everything God commanded him. Now, initially, when you look at this story, and especially in the Hebrew language, it looks like God was just plain getting rid of everything. It's an undoing of creation, the way it's worded. What I mean by this is that the creative story begins, you know, after God created something, he'd say, it's good, it's good, it's good. This story begins, it's bad. It's just like the undoing of it. The creation story, God removed all the water so the land appeared. Here now he's bringing all the water back. It's just an undoing of the creation story. In the creation story, God created life. Here he was taking life. It looks like an undoing, but that's not what it is. It's a reset. The world had become such it wasn't worth living. When Noah and his family got off the ark, God said to Noah just what he said to Adam and Eve back in the garden. He said, now I want you to be fruitful and multiply replenish the earth and you can eat from everything that you see. God told Noah, by the way, in Genesis 9 3 that now you can eat meat. That actually came from the heart of God. But what was God doing? He was washing it all away, all the horrible stuff away so he could start again with good. Dr. A.P. Ross puts it this way, the flood shows the extent to which God will go to bring about holiness and rest on the earth. It's here that the godly find encouragement in God's plan for good to triumph ultimately over evil. It just reflects the fact God is good. So his goodness is reflected over the grief he experienced and, and over his willingness to start over. But the last main point I want to make is that his goodness is reflected through his willingness to warn the world before the coming judgment. Before his heart, his heart was that before I destroy the world, I want people to know I'm going to warn. I'm going to warn everybody, which is what God does. And so in Genesis 6-3, we learn how long it was going to be between the warning and the actual flood. We read, and the Lord said, my spirit will not remain with mankind forever. And the word remain can be translated strive. I will not strive with these people forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. Now, some have suggested that is a reference to how long they'll live. That doesn't seem right. Most scholars agree with what I would say, and that is that it's talking about, I'm not going to strive with them forever. I'm going to give them 120 years. And this is what scholars in the Jewish tradition believe. J.A. Matthews writes, Jewish tradition understood 120 years as an opportunity for repentance. Why so much time? Give them time. Give them time to repent with the example of Noah. Now, we don't know how long, by the way, it took to, re to build this ark. It wasn't probably 120 years. In fact, we know it wasn't that long. People misunderstand that based on the length of time that was just mentioned. But it was likely between 55 and 75 years, and there's a good case for why it's about 75 years. He's building this thing for 75 years without electric drills and, and hammers. And you can imagine the scene that was unfolding, and then you can understand how this was a warning to the world. Because everyone's watching him build this thing, and they're wondering, what are you doing? 
well, there's going to be a flood. Rain is going to come down from heaven. Now, some have suggested that it hadn't rained on the earth up to this point, and that's possible. They get this from the early part of the creation story in Genesis 2-6, that water would come out of the ground and water the entire surface of the land. So pre-flood, it's possible that's how the earth got watered from beneath. And by the way, this is part of the reason the flood was so, there was just so much water because it, it describes in the account how it came from the heavens, like canopies of water, and it came from the ground. It came from both places, 40 days and 40 nights. We saw what happens if it rains just one day around here, Morgantown recently. But anyway, the people had, I'm sure, some trouble believing it. Noah, though, I think, talked with them about it. He, I think, explained it to them. He's called in, in 2 Peter a preacher of righteousness. And as he was building, I envisioned people were coming up to him and they were saying, what are you doing? I'm building this ark because judgment's coming and you want to spare yourselves. Turn from your wicked ways. Turn to God. But they didn't listen. Nobody listened to him. I'm sure they mocked him. I mean, you can imagine he's building a boat in the middle of nowhere. No water nearby. Like, what are you, why are you doing this? And they could have discounted him as just this crazy guy. I mean, I think people probably thought of Noah like they do those people that carry those signs that say the end is near. You think, you know, you're just kind of crazy. But he kept building. At a certain point, you look at this amazing structure, you realize that's not the structure a crazy person would build. It's perfect. Everything about it shows, you know, order. It's not a crazy person, but they would not listen. Only Noah had faith in Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was yet not seen, just like the people, and motivated by God the fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. And so the very thing that he was building was meant to be a sign to the world, but nobody listened now, they were without excuse, and so it came, and, and they assumed it wouldn't happen, so they went about life, and then all of a sudden, they were all caught off guard. Now, one thing we need to understand is that this is going to happen again, not a flood. God said it wouldn't be a flood, but God is going to judge the world again. And in the, the, the days before Christ comes back, people are going to be exactly the way they were in Noah's day. Peter wrote about this in 2 Peter 3, 3 through 9. He said, first be aware that scoffers will come in the last days to scoff, living according to their own desires, doing what they want to do, fleshly things, saying, where's the promise of his coming? You know, where's this, where is the fulfillment of Jesus' return? You know, ever since our fathers fell asleep, ever since they died, all things continue as they've ever been since the beginning of creation. They willfully ignore this. They put it out of their mind that long ago the heavens and earth were brought about from water and through water by the word of God. Through these waters, the world of that time perished when it flooded. But by the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you. And it's my third point here about the kindness of God and giving chances. Don't let this escape you. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. 
The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's why. Why is it taking so long for Jesus to come back? That's why. He's giving people time, just like he did in Noah's day. Now, what should we do with this? What would be the application? Well, number one, I'm hoping you walk away with just this sense that God is good. He, he, our God is good. He's gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Our God is good. And we need to see him that way as a God who's good. And his goodness is reflected through the grief and through the willingness to start over and his willingness to warn people. But let me give some other thoughts here. One is that this story is a story of salvation and it should be a picture for some of us here how God wants to deliver all of us from judgment to come. And in the ark with the boat, there was only one door, one way in. And I want to suggest here that we get right with God. There's only one way in through Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He also said, I am the door to the sheepfold. No one can enter except through me. See, Jesus Christ, in a sense, took the floodwaters of judgment for us when he died on the cross. He was taking our judgment. And he did die and was buried, but when he rose from the dead, it proved God accepted the payment on our behalf. Jesus was willing to be judged so we could be declared not guilty. It requires faith on our part, though, to put our trust in him, to come to a point where we say, I know I've sinned, I know I can't fix it, I want to turn to you, Jesus, save me. I want your death and resurrection to count for me. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord, Paul wrote, will be saved, will be delivered from the penalty of their sin. And when that happens, you become, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 17, a new creation. Just think in Noah's day. If anyone is in Christ, they identified with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, their new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. If you're already a Christian here today, two applications for you. Number one is I want to encourage you to be like Noah in the sense that he lived differently than the world did. Speaking about Noah again in Genesis 6, 8, Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. He alone in his generation lived differently. And as Christians, we're to live differently in this world. How? Well, we have different values than the world does the world values wealth, it values power, it values beauty. I mean, these are not bad things in and of themselves, but they're not what we live for. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so we live for our God and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Jesus said. So we have different values. We also have different morals. The, mor the world is on a, an ugly path. And they're living contrary to what's clearly taught in the pages of the Bible. We're to, to live differently, and I think we should have a different kind of love. The world is very conditional on its love. I'll love you if you love me. And I think we live very differently. And so I want to encourage you to examine your life and say, are there ways? You know, the challenge of every believer of every age has been, the world's this way, but how should I be if I'm a person of faith? And then the last application is I encourage you to tell others about Christ. Be like Noah in that way as well. He was called a preacher of righteousness. The flood in the past is a picture of what's coming in the future. And out of love for other people, we need to tell them about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for this story, and I thank you how it does reflect your amazing patience, love, grace, kindness. I thank you how it's even a picture for us to follow the example of Noah.
And I pray, Lord, you give us the grace to examine our lives and, and live differently. And help, help this impact our lives in a profound way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes our time this morning, but before you leave, I want to ask you just to ask yourself one question. Is there something God brought to your mind that he wants you to do? I want to encourage you to do it and not walk away and, and, and not be impacted by whatever God may have said to you. And have a happy Father's Day. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.